Hello and welcome to Not Even Mad, a show where we're certainly skeptical, conspicuously quizzical, and likely to lock horns, but we're not even mad. We are three people who sometimes don't agree, and we take joy in that status. Today, as we speak of baby crypto Madoff SBF, if the World Cup is worth Qatar's baggage, and in cancel court, public health official Lena Wen, we do vow to relish the discourse because we are not even mad. Are we specifically? Jamie Kerchick is a columnist for Tablet Magazine and author of the New York Times bestseller, Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. I ask this for a reason, Jamie. If you were to come up with a name for a Twitter alternative, what would it be? Stegosaurus. <laughs> that is. That takes Mastodon to the next or maybe earlier era. Virginia Heffernan writes for Wired and for her own substack called Magic and Loss. Virginia, you have to have... A name for your Twitter alternative. It can't be Mastodon. What is it? I think I'd call it International Business Machines. It's my favorite tech company <laughs> name. Of course, it's IBM, it but there must yeah. be a better. We must be able. We maybe no abbreviation. Just International Business Machines. Who it, doesn't it, trust it keeps, that? It keeps being cutting edge. <laughs> IBM. I am Mike Pesca, host of the Gist, and Virginia, as you know, to quote Matt Damon, "Fortune favors the brave," which takes us where? Uh, to FTX. God, will Matt Damon ever live this down? Yeah, I mean, I guess the chief question about FTX, which, you know, went from a zillion dollars basically overnight to zero dollars and zero cents, is did wokes, as you guys might call them, enable Sam Bankman-Fried's fraud crypto exchange because he gave a shit ton to Biden and other Democrats. Here's CNBC asking Maxine Waters some tough questions about the Democrats and FTX. What do you say to the, the cynics that are looking at all those campaign contributions that he made, including many to Democrats, 40 million in the med midterms, which made it the Democrats' second largest donor, and, and wonder if there was an oversight and regulation of him and his firm because he was such an important donor? to your party. You know, what we understand about uh, the election systems in this country is there are rules to given donations. And when one follows those rules, uh, then you cannot object uh, to the fact that they give contributions and they follow the law in the way that they give them. Uh, but as I understand it, without the investigation having gone on, that there were contributions made to Democrats and Republicans. And certainly uh, those contributions may have been done in an attempt to influence. Uh, but of course, we have to deal with that. First off, my my first response as a crypto gambler myself is that we don't care about F, about SBF's politics. I mean, I've traded Doge, as you know, Mike, and Musk's political commitments are, let's say, unaligned with my own. Mm -hmm. As for the big FTX investors, the VCs, Sequoia made its biggest bet on PayPal. So that's where it started. Started, of course, by right-winger Peter Thiel. And Tom Brady, one of the public faces of FTX, is, is no woke. Um, at the same time, the Democratic majority Congress, and we, we just heard from Maxine Waters there, was definitely duped by SBF's kind of kabuki enthusiasm about crypto regulation. So, you know, on the grounds that did woke support him, you know, Elizabeth Warren has been crusading against crypto, now specifically against FTX. And actual leftist media, like Jeet Heer's piece in The Nation, uh, has hardly woke-washed him. It sort of slagged him off as the darling of globalists. In any case, I'm absolutely open to any evidence that shows progressives were dazzled or bought by SBF and enabled his massive fraud. This, I hope, will all come out in the months to come. Mike, what say you? Does FDX seem to you more an open and shut case of woke washing? And if so, how do you think it all went down? Well, it went down like it always goes down when we talk about phrases like influence peddling. And you're not going to get Jamie Harrison on tape, uh, head of the Democratic National Committee, beneficiary of half a million dollars of Bankman Fried's money, to say, and now, Sam, we shall do your bidding, <laughs> blah, ha, ha, but this is why people give money. 
and why people give money, maybe in his case, is a few reasons. But to throw off the scent is certainly a plausible explanation. I have uh, the open secrets filing on SBF and FTX here. You know, Soros from the finance sector, they lump in finance, insurance, and real estate. (laughs) Soros gives $129 million. It is by far the most. But if it weren't for the FTX giving, all the next big levels of giving, Citadel, Susquehanna, Blackstone, Teal Capital, they're all Republican donors. Now, there were some Republican donors in the FTX mix, but not Bankman Freed. He gave $39 million. And it wasn't just that he gave to all these Democrats. It was that he was feted after not being vetted too much by the kind of people in the media who should do it. So his parents are Stanford law professors, and that's great. And he has a fuzzy head and seems kind of cute and donates to this thing called effective altruism and who could be against that. So applause for him. And he's kind of hitting all the anti-Peter Thiel notes so that I don't know if he got a pass per se. I know that all the profiles were extremely incurious about what was going on in the back office. But you have to be fair and say that his persona, whether exactly constructed for this end or not, certainly helped him along in the uh, schemes and ripoffs that now we understand that he was undertaking. Yeah, I think the scandal is much less with the political class, although that certainly gives the appearance of corruption, which is certainly bad in a democracy. You don't want people losing faith in their political leaders. I think the scandal is more with the media, and we haven't mentioned all the money that he gave to media outlets, Mm -hmm. including Vox, where he gave this very bizarre sort of interview via Twitter where he essentially opened up about his cynicism and that he was kind of mouthing these platitudes about effective altruism while not really meaning them or having much faith in them. Uh, He also invested money in Semaphore, the new internet startup, and in ProPublica, which is um, a nonprofit investigative journalism outlet. And so I I place more of the blame here on, on the media, which perhaps was, you know, some outlets were literally in, in his pay, um, but others, I think, were just sort of ideologically aligned with him and liked him and therefore didn't launch the investigative um, pieces into him that they constantly are doing on someone like Peter Thiel or Elon Musk or someone whose politics are not, you know, bien pensant liberal. Bien pensant, man, that word kills me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's what we should say BPS, instead of woke. let's call it. Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, I, okay. Yeah, I think I, I'm going to just say that I'm, I'm absolutely with you, Jamie, on saying we need to, you know, do muckraking journalism all the time on people, well, on anyone heavily in crypto and, uh, and anyone who you know, turn, makes several billion dollars, tens of billions of dollars overnight as he did, and then goes on to lose it overnight. And anyone who at the same time is trying to grease the palms of, uh, of the media. Um, and I mean, I see that, you know, Vox is not exercising or have somehow frozen the funds that they, they gave him. And, um, and, you know, others have tried to back away from it. But, you know, if he's if that in, helped inform coverage, that's also terrible. You know, what I do see is that lots of, uh, you know, Matt Iglesias de- declined to work with him. But most people, as you know, in media are not pro-crypto. Um, you know, as I said, I've traded crypto and I'm constantly having to defend myself from charges that I've participated in a Ponzi scheme. You know, so I don't see completely credulous coverage of him. I've looked, he says he's been on 20 magazine covers. The only magazine covers I can find um, are post-collapse on New York Magazine, which is very much gloating about his con or very much um, piling on him as a fraud. So I don't see the um, hagiography there. He didn't get quite the Elizabeth Holmes treatment, but maybe I'm missing something. Is Men's Health or GQ or Philanthropy Magazine or something talking about... The New York Times, even in the days after, the New York Times was publishing some fawning articles. Yeah, that piece was soft. I I don't... I don't totally consider that a puff piece, but I, I really do agree with that. I don't know. I mean, this was such a nice opportunity to pile on. It's hard because it was after the fact, right? It's hard. uh, It's a very hard story to report 
and facts are still coming out, but the times should have um, come after the whole subject with much more aggression. I agree. I don't know. Maybe it was on the cover of uh, Baggy Pants Quarterly or (laughs) Guy Who Refuses to Get a Haircut. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Weekly, (laughs) daily. I mean, we mentioned Soros, the only person to give more money to Democrats this cycle. And I think, frankly, the media's treatment of him and the kind of act, the the Democratic left-wing activist class treatment of Soros and how the media, uh, excuse me, the... um, the way in which Soros has been covered, I think, is very illustrative here, because we know that it's very difficult now to even mention George Soros's name in a negative light without being accused of being an anti-Semite. And that's only been the case since he became a big donor of domestic American left-wing causes. I mean, I've written about this. In the late 1990s, The New Yorker published a very skeptical profile of George Soros when he was only directing his attentions, you know, in Eastern Europe and in, in, in that part of the world. After he became the leading funder of democratic and progressive causes in the United States, the media started taking a very different attitude towards George Soros to the point where now over the summer, when, you know, Marco Rubio referred to Soros-backed prosecutors, by which he meant the district attorneys, the, 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 the progressive district attorneys whom Soros through his various um, uh, you know, PACs and whatnot have has spent tens of millions of dollars funding these prosecutors merely from saying sor- the, the using the phrase Soros backed prosecutors. Marco Rubio was met with an avalanche of criticism, accusing him of engaging in anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. So I think that there's just a kind of herd mentality when it comes to the mainstream media and their you know their favored billionaires. I think there was a media bias towards him, but the question is, did that bias, but for that bias, would we have found out about his scam? No, that's why he that's why he relocated to the Bahamas to be outside the reach of bankers. And if the well, I SEC think some really tough investigative journalism might have been able to perhaps break this story open before people before he lost billions of dollars in people's life savings. Maybe an intrepid investigative journalist would have been able to at least raise more yeah, at least raise I mean, more red flags about this guy. I mean, I, I, I think I accept Congress and other people in in the financial press when would they say this is an incredibly complicated story to report. I mean, one of the the best living financial journalists is doing the SBF story right now and has realized he has to do it at book length just to make any sense of it. Um, it's not, this is, this is something that will take a long time to unravel, not unlike the financial crisis of 2008. Um, and, Which I uh, still don't understand. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and uh, and so, you know, one other really? thing. Adam McKay movies haven't done it for you? <laughs> she talked to the camera from the bathtub, Jamie. But <laughs> Yeah, that's right. In, in a way, you're right. It's complex because he wants to make it complex and arcane. And as we're talking about, everyone benefits from uh, there being this level of opacity. But on the other hand, there's a very clear, simple way to understand mm-hmm. it, which is that deposits in the exchange weren't backed one-to-one and they were backed by tokens that were just made out of mm-hmm. whole cloth or not even cloth or something that he defined as cloth. So he generated these tokens that said, okay, your money's backed up. But once the tokens became worthless as they should have, there was no money there. Yeah. So it was a scam exactly uh, perpetrated because he was doing his banking and he was doing his uh, finances offshore. And another complicated thing is he did, I mean, he even, he was undone because he got into a fight with the Binance guy, CZ, and mm-hmm. CZ doesn't want regulation. Right. SBF reportedly wanted regulation, another reason why he was mm-hmm. the good guy. Now, he did admit to this uh, Vox reporter, yeah, that was all bullshit, but that is a complication. Mm-hmm. So you're right. We'd never get the chance to know we can't run reality where there was the intrepid reporter who was not uh, enthralled by his puff of hair. But I don't think this phenomenon will come close to ending because I looked at who gives Vox grants and there's just a bunch of corporations like the Brunswick Electric Corporation, which I don't know. Has anyone really investigated that? <laughs> right. Kick the tires there. Yeah, we kick, which <laughs> literally is true. Or animal charity evaluators or the Rockefeller Foundation, which I guess some people look into, but most don't because they give so much money away. Mm. So this is how a lot of news organizations work. It's how pu- pro-publica work works. So Someone has a bunch of money and you're not going to ask too many questions about them. And if there is a scandal, then afterwards you say, well, I guess we should have
should have known, but there'll only be a scandal in a small percentage of cases and you'd rather take their money up front. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we're agreed it's up in the air. Ja- Jamie, thanks for uh, keeping our feet to the fire on both sides of both sides of the aisle. And when it comes to uh, swampy behavior, um, absolutely important to uh, to make sure the media and the Democrats don't give this guy a pass. That's what I'm here for, Virginia. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. Um, All right. Um, And Jamie, you know what you're also here for? To tell us about Qatar. Qatar? Qatar? But first, we're going to an ad, and then we'll come back with FIFA in Qatar. And that'll be right after this break. Okay, we're back with Not Even Matt. Here is the head of the International Football Federation, Gianni Infantino, speaking uh, earlier this week at the World Cup in Qatar. Today, I have uh, very strong feelings. I can tell you that. Today, I feel uh, Qatari. Today, I feel... Arab. Today I feel African. Today I feel uh, gay. Today I feel disabled. Today I feel uh, a migrant worker. Give that man an Oscar. The head of football's international governing body, FIFA, was defending the organization's decision to host the World Cup and the repressive Middle Eastern dictatorship of Qatar. While acknowledging the country's less than stellar human rights record, Infantino also said that criticism of the country was, quote, profoundly unjust, and that Westerners ought look in the mirror before disparaging an absolute monarchy where homosexuality can be punishable by death, where women are second-class citizens, and where the migrant laborers who constructed the tournament's physical infrastructure are treated like slaves. Responding to Infantino's monologue, a spokesman for Amnesty International said that, quote, in brushing aside legitimate human rights criticisms, Gianni Infantino is dismissing the enormous price paid by migrant workers to make his flagship tournament possible, as well as FIFA's responsibility for it. That price is massive. An investigation by The Guardian revealed that 6,500 migrant workers have died in Qatar since the country was awarded the World Cup in 2010. Now, moral corruption in international sporting goes back at least as far as the 1936 Berlin Olympics, also known as the Nazi Olympics. Since then, we've also had the 1980 Moscow Olympics, which the United States and over 60 countries boycotted in response to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, the 2008 Beijing Summer Olympics, and the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics. This year's World Cup raises that perennial question of what the relationship should be, if any, between sports and politics. Virginia, what say you? And do you, like Gianni Infantino, feel Qatari, gay, and or a migrant laborer? I I feel, the one thing I don't feel is an athlete with interest in soccer. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so it seems to me pretty clear that Qatar needs to be um, marginalized um, for its massive human rights abuses. We know very well why we continue to interact with and deal with Saudi Arabia, um, but uh, but Qatar, it's less clear. This seems like a, 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 a... a good opportunity to send a message uh, to the international community that Qatar does not get a seat at the table, much less a uh, place on the pitch. Well, I think that we have to take a moment and congratulate as someone who rose to the head of FIFA, one of the international sports world most important bodies, someone who is gay, disabled, a migrant worker. I don't know how he did it. I rise and cheer him more than I would any bicycle kick or set play that was well executed. Okay, that was a ridiculous, ridiculous statement. But you're forced to make ridiculous statements when you go in with the Qataris on this World Cup. I do have to say, however, are they? is it a bad country? Yeah, except compared to all the other countries that host international sporting events. So... Freedom House gives Qatar a 25 in its rankings. It means not free. But, you know, China, 
host of the last Winter Olympics, got a nine. Russia, host of the last FIFA World Cup, got an 11, I think it was. So they're doing better than their, their peer groups of oppressive autocratic regimes and would-be dictators who use sports to put themselves on the map. The worker, the death of the worker issue, that's pretty bad. I don't quite trust the statistics of 6,500 workers killed while just building World Cup apparatus. I wouldn't be too surprised if this was the number killed over the last decade since FIFA got the World Cup and building roads and infrastructure and a whole bunch of soccer stadium. They've imported 2,000 workers from North Korea. But really, seriously, I want to make a point a little more subtle than everybody does it. It is clear that let's take the World Cup and the Olympics, it is clear what the rules of the game are. And the rules of the game are they do not care about human rights. And so if those are the rules of the game, it's almost like being mad at soccer for not allowing the guys to throw the ball. Those are the rules of the game. You know, anyone, and then I'll also mention, and we could get into the bribery that brought them this World Cup, but Every four years, sure, every once in a while, Japan or a decent enough country hosts the Olympics or the World Cup. But, you know, the World Cup was Russia and then Brazil before that. And then I covered the World Cup in South Africa. But this happens all the time. We have a little round of why do we let it happen? Because we've this is this is how we've defined the rules of the game. I don't understand. I do understand the human impulse, but I don't think it's logical or productive to get mad about it for the two weeks before the games. And then there is, you know, a wonderful final and Brazil or the Netherlands win. And we remember some great Ronaldo kicks. It's just, it's just, it seems totally pointless to me. And there's nothing to argue that it's ever going to be anything other than that. I think even by the standards of FIFA, which is an extremely corrupt organization, and let's not forget there were dozens of people arrested in connection to various bribery scandals following an international investigation that wrapped up around 2014, I believe, including the Dickensian-named former president of FIFA, Sepp Blatter, who has been (laughs) banned from the sport until 2027. This is a country that has no tradition of even playing soccer at all. Um, The weather is so oppressively hot that they've had to build these giant environmentally destructive stadiums with with massive air conditioners just to keep the temperature um, at a at a you know human rate um, they're not e- they're also strictly limiting the sale of beer and so you know what is the purpose of a major soccer tournament if you can't have a bunch of Europeans getting extremely pissed drunk the whole thing is a joke <laughs> you know soccer is a joke of a sport there's hardly any scoring at all. The players are always pretending to be injured and whining on the field. You know, I'm sorry if this offends uh, our, our producer, Joel, who I know is a soccer fan. I, I'm sorry about that. But I mean, this just kind of this whole rigmarole now, um, you know, is just sort of confirms my uh, disinterest in this game altogether. I, I mean, uh, Jamie, I, the fact that you would reject the beautiful game and the very Euro game, <laughs> you keep us on our toes, man. You love squash. You hate soccer. This is like, this is good Jamie, Jamie There's material. lots of points in squash. There's points almost every second. It sounds, you sound like a basketball <laughs> fan to me. Um I mean, yes, there's there there's there's some wonderful history here. Uh, speaking of Dickensian figures, Chuck Blazer, friend of the former president, Donald Trump, and also a uh, resident of his uh, of Trump Tower, where he kept a separate unit, six thousand dollars a month just for his cats. Uh, it was um, was a flamboyant figure in the um, in the earlier scandal um, and, and I guess flipped on FIFA and turned state's evidence. Yeah, I mean, these things do seem very sticky to me. I I guess the one idealistic argument I'll make is that I, you know, you all know I've droned on about it. I've become, you know, especially focused on uh, on chip technology. And one of the ways that America, the West has tried to um, keep its monopoly on on chips and squeeze China out is by putting ES, so-called ESG pressure 
on um, on nations who use Chinese networks, so especially 5G networks. And this has been extraordinarily successful. Um, Keith Kroc, the former, uh, uh, one of the former State Department employees under Donald Trump, um, founder of DocuSign, did something to persuade people that working with the 5G network, persuade heads of state, working with 5G, the 5G network, um, the cheap one, with China meant participating in their ESG violations and successfully got everybody off it. Um, and th- that's the kind of thing that I think you do well to do, which is um, it's like a soft, soft boycott or marginalization of ESG rogues. Um, and I don't think it's, I don't think it's too idealistic or not understanding the rules of the game to expect that some of these organizations, if they're aligned with democracy may have to, um, make a choice and stay out of a place like Qatar or China, for that matter. They're not aligned with democracy. FIFA has a uh, hundred sixty or however many it is members in its organization. It's why someone from Trinidad and Tobago has as much power as someone from the United States. It's why a bribe and a million dollar bribe, several million dollar bribes, go very far. Do you see the hat I'm wearing? <laughs> yes. We should tell listeners we do this. We look at each other over an app called Riverside. You want to read that, Jamie? Bidding nations? Bidding nation? Is that what it says? Yes. I was at a watch party for when they awarded the FIFA World Cup. They were doing it for the 2018 and 2022 awardees, which wound up being Russia and Qatar. New York, the United States, had a bid. It was a very impressive bid. I read it. They didn't give a damn. They didn't give a damn because there was... A lot of millions of dollars to be made if you were from Trinidad and Tobago or any other country that wanted to take a bribe, and apparently they did. Mm -hmm. So my point is that there is – it seems to me there is no point to having any objections to any human rights abuses when it comes to international sports. There is no evidence that it does anything except upset people in the countries that don't share the values of the – autocracies that host these sporting events. So why do we keep doing it, right? Either we actually say we're not going or we say this is how it goes. We're not we're not willing to take any steps to reform these organizations. Like it's unlike trying to put pressure on China to do something about the Uyghurs, right? We're all part of FIFA. If Europe and the United States said, that's it, we, we, we just can't do this anymore. There'd be no World Cup. So even though it's, mm. uh, you know, Trinidad, I'm sorry to pick on Trinidad and Tobago, but they were at the center of this scandal. But if it is uh, Sao Principe or some other islands that take the money, it is still all the countries of Europe that allow it to happen. There's almost no point. It's, it makes for a good guardian article and we should know if you want to have a good conscience about what we're watching in the uh in the summer heat in the winter heat of qatar that you know it is built on the backs of literally like north korean laborers but they're that they're also to use another literally is no point to getting mad at this if no one's going to do anything about it and we're clearly not so Mike is literally, literally not even mad. <laughs> well, this is, what I think, one of those times where we actually have to cede to, to Mike on the grounds that he is an expert in the subject way more. Well, I'm not an expert. I'm not. I'm, I'm an expert on the machinations of awarding international sporting competitions. I'm not the expert on morality. And uh, to, to be quick, you know, I've interviewed people who have been in the State Department and I have said, do you, I know we always prattle on about how we want China to have better human rights. Do you think that ever matters? And I always get one of these reactions. Oh, oh, oh I hope my life's work wasn't for nothing, but I think it might've been. Ay, ay, ay. Well, I would like to see the United States pull out when, you know, there. I don't know if they'd be a, be a tipping point, but, um, you know, let's make a uh, free world, free world FIFA. Well, there is UEFA. There is an opportunity to do something like this. But what the Olympics does and what FIFA does is it appeals to not just the base interests of money or um, prestige. 
There is something laudatory about an international sporting competition. Maybe Jamie wants to accept soccer from this, but there is something about certainly the Olympic creator, the fact that soccer is the world game that convinces people who maybe should otherwise know better and can have a moral objection, convinces them to say, okay, we do have to go along in the name for the sport and the ideal of the sport. But the cynical operators in places like Qatar or Vladimir Putin in, in Russia, they know this and they use it and we let them use it. Well, having failed to cancel Cutter, <laughs> we will now move on to cancel court. And that's after the break. And we are back with Not Even Mad. Oyves, oyves, cancel court is in session. Justices Kerchik, Heffernan, and Pesca presiding. All those who have been canceled might have been canceled or stand for the proposition that no one is ever canceled, it's all a myth, are admonished to draw near and give their attention. The American Public Health Association national meeting, the biggest of its kind, was held in Boston earlier this month, and attendees there were not able to hear from this woman. There was a and is a time and place for pandemic restrictions, but when they were put in, it was always with the understanding that they would be removed as soon as we can. And in this case, circumstances have changed. Case counts are declining. Also, the science has changed. We know that vaccines protect very well against Omicron, which is the dominant variant. Everyone five and older have widespread access to vaccines. And we also know about one-way masking, the idea that even if other people around you are not wearing masks. If you wear a high quality mask, that also protects you, the wearer, too. That talking on CNN was Dr. Lena Wen, research professor of health policy and management at George Washington University, who previously served as the health commissioner for Baltimore. Wen was to appear on a panel about the backlash against public health, but then experienced a backlash against Lena Wen. Hundreds of, quote, practitioners, educators, students, advocates, and allies demanded that the APHA disinvite Wen for relaxing mandates when the evidence demanded it, as she explained in that clip. When was also called out, quote, through her platform on news outlets and social media, Dr. Wen has promoted unscientific, unsafe, ableist, fatphobic, and unethical practices during the COVID-19 pandemic. The APHA did not disinvite Wen. It stood by her. It supported her scholarship. But after a man was convicted of threatening Wen's life over her support of mandates and vaccines, she began to get new threats and wrote on Twitter, I have been made aware that attending the APHA conference will put me at personal risk. Respectfully and regretfully, I must decline the invitation. She did not speak at that conference. So Jamie, I ask you, you add it all up. Does this mean that Lena Wen was canceled? It seems to me that she was not technically canceled in the, in the sense that she chose voluntarily not to speak. Uh, but the spirit of cancellation is very much in the air here. She, uh, if, if there's any realm of human endeavor in which open debate, uh, the the airing of different views um, should exist, it is public health. Uh, it is the, the health of the public is at stake. We need the scientific method. We need people expressing their views, sharing data. Um, the views that, that Dr. Wen was expressing, by the way, are the views of the CDC. She's not expressing some kind of you know, far-right, anti-vax, anti-masking anti opinion. In fact, the irony here is that she herself was something of a COVID hawk at the outset of the pandemic. And at one point, she even said that uh, unvaccinated people shouldn't be allowed on planes and there, there are certain aspects of life that they should not have access to. So there's, there, there's an irony here, although I, I don't believe that in any way. I'm, I'm not taking any pleasure in this. I think it's a very worrying sign. Yeah, I'll just before we get to Virginia, I will say that there are those taking pleasure. For instance, the Federalist had this headline, Lena Wen created COVID Karens and they're coming for her. I guess they mean over the, the over 600 people signed the petition. But was she canceled, Virginia? You know, she this is this gets to what I think is an interesting um, phenomenon in my own life. When the left comes after you, they uh, it's it's appalling because they can actually get you fired. When the right comes after you, it's appalling because they do dangerous things like make threats on your life. And it sounds like the person who threatened her life, and it must have been a somewhat credible threat because it kept her from going, 
objected to her presence because she was pro uh, mask mandates and vaccines. So I don't know where the the I don't know where the animus toward her is coming from. I know she has this this background at Planned Parenthood. She sounds like an extraordinarily good scientist. Um, and as for looking out for um, ableism and fat phobia, which I think are real things, we can't be all things to all people. And public health requires um, requires some swift. Uh, and sometimes um, not very politic uh, ways of handling situations. And by the when- way, the evidence—the evidence of her fat phobia—it's important to point out—was <laughs> mm-hmm. that Krispy Kreme was offering a donut to everyone who got vaccinated. Oh yeah, I got and one. She, and she just tweeted, "You know, while it's nice to have a donut, you shouldn't be eating them every day because they, you know, cause obesity and that can increase your chances of dying if you get COVID." It was something along those lines. Yeah. That's not even fat phobia. That's, that's just nutritional donut information. Donut phobia. <laughs> donut phobia. Well, yeah. I okay, I, but I don't want to get down to every single one of them. I will, you know, every single one of the criticisms. I, I, I don't know her research in depth, and maybe she's, you know, wonderful on all these issues. But I, but it's possible that at some point she was in politic in the name of saving lives. And clearly she was in politic to the right because she created COVID Karens or whatever and, um, mm. and masks and, and vax mandates. Um, so as for cancellation, I think this is, this ended up being the kind of cancellation that often comes from the right, which is people just scare the shit out of you and keep you from appearing in public. It's separate but equal in um, in its sometimes devastating effects than the cancellations that we're more familiar with that happen that happen on the left. So it sounds like she was driven out by the righties while also criticized by the lefties, and um, and I think she did absolutely right to stay out of this conference. Well, I, the petition was signed by over 600, I think mostly students, but I counted 89 professors and a bunch of whoever wants to call themselves allies. But they were all, if you want to have the left-right continuum, they were all of the left. That was, that was the kerfuffle. That was the witch's brew. That, those were the headwinds. And then she cites the threat to life. I'm sure she's thinking something along the lines of, there's already been one guy who was arrested for threatening my life. Who knows where this, who this next person who was arrested uh, was or is uh, I've read articles that, you know, include his name and include a detail about what he said. But but for the people who claim that she's fat phobic and that the fact that she ever said we don't have to wear a mask is killing people. But for that loud, angry petition, she'd be speaking at the conference. No. Well, I don't know. All I can say is she seems she seems to cite this threat, this threat from someone who sees her as having been a covid Karen. I know at Planned Parenthood, she was seen as insufficiently committed to abortion rights. Um, you know, I, I, I think I depart from some people around covid in thinking that believe science is. Um, means almost nothing to me. Believe evidence, maybe, but science and its high priests and priestesses don't deserve any more deference without evidence than anyone in a religious life. Um, and um, to the extent that she was parting company with some people in public health, including people who think about how, say, ableism and fat phobia determine public health, the fact that she was departing from them does not make her, she did not deserve to have this petition circulated. It sounds like it was fairly absurd. She should have been included in the conference. But again, as I I understand getting death threats from the right, and if she did get this death threat and chose not to not to attend. Maybe it was just a question of the straw that broke the camel's back. The lefties don't want you. A righty's going to kill you. Time to stay home. Yeah. So I'll read a couple of statements. And to their credit, the APHA said, public health has a history of healthy dialogue and disagreement. Finding the common ground in these discussions is how we move the needle forward toward creating healthy people and healthy communities. We value vigorous debate about public health and support a respectful fact-based discussion. Good statement. And then the moderator of the session on backlash she was to appear on, Alfredo Morabia, uh, didn't replace Wen, had an empty chair there purposefully to symbolize her and said, I have not replaced Dr. Wen because I 
did not want to leave any doubts that I was going to have her in the panel, and I disagreed with the campaign that has been waged against her. So I just bring those up to compliment the sentiments, but also to say, well, then was it a cancellation? Maybe I'm getting too technical and in the, in the weeds here. I don't think those people should have objected. I don't think the people, the 600 people should have. I, th- I think that there is, is a point of view that I don't credit. I don't credit at all. And also to take the step of saying, we demand that she not speak was wrong. But what do you do if there is someone who you feel, you honestly feel, and there are many people in academia, credentialed people who maybe we even have respect for in other areas, who said that, yes, her she was being too blasé. I, I totally disagree. And Jamie, I think you totally disagree. But saying, saying she was being too blasé about opening up. She wasn't taking enough care to think about the most vulnerable amongst us. What kind of expression, if we believe in free expression, should they be, quote unquote, allowed to have where we wouldn't call them cancellation. They should just object, uh, say, I object, but don't demand They can say they object to her opinion. Here's why I disagree with what she has to say, and I'm going to engage with her in a debate, in a collegial scientific debate over the merits of the policies that she's proposing. That's what we used to do in this country uh, until quite recently and before all of our institutions got swept up in this madness. Do you say I disagree with her invitation, but... I don't call for her to be deplatformed. I think that would that? be fine. I mean, yeah. I you know I've been in a situation myself. We talked about it on this show a couple of weeks ago. I was at a literary festival where Alice Walker, a very prominent vulgar anti-Semite, was also the featured speaker. And I didn't uh, tell the organizers of the literary festival to disinvite her, or I didn't I didn't encourage people in the audience to shout her down. I used my Uh, panel discussion, which was before hers, to criticize her anti-Semitic statements. And I think that's really the best way to go about these sorts of situations when you disagree with someone, no matter how vehemently. Yeah. I mean, I I also think, though, a petition like this from students is also protected speech and doesn't need from mostly of course students. it is no one's de- no one's right. disputing oh, that they have a right know, they have a yeah. right to do this i know this. but just because people ha- say they want you deplatformed um, doesn't like isn't itself uh i think something to balk at or want you not included in something i mean disinviting i mean the, the, you know you say that things have always been so civil or we had perfect open discussions about things i mean just not true for as long I as i can remember I, people on you know all sides of a question have thrown tomatoes at speakers or metaphorically thrown tomatoes at them or stormed out of their classrooms i mean these are what students do and i'm very not glad like, not like this and you can look at the fire in fire the foundation for individual rights and expression they keep a, a register of all the attempted cancellations successful cancellations and there's been a spike over the past couple of years, I don't have the numbers at my fingertips, but you can go on their website and find out. And, and they they come from it was both over sides. Two hundred last year, yeah, yeah, and it's increasing, and it's been increasing. And this is, you know, I was on. I'm I'm the youngest person on this show, and I was on. A, I was on a college campus more recently than uh, you two guys, and it was not like this when I was a college student. It it, 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 was, it simply wasn't. Well, I, um, I, and it's and it's gotten a lot worse. And to see it happen now in the scientific community, these are the people who's you know who who whom we entrust with our lives mm-hmm. and with our public health. To see them surrendering to this you know extreme ideology, this extremely illiberal ideology is very worrisome. I mean, it's one thing for this kind of crap to be happening in the humanities department of, you know, Antioch College. It's another thing when it's the people, you know, with the lab coats who who we are entrusting with our lives. Yeah. And it's not just students. Like I said, there are a lot of professors among the hundreds who object. Okay. I have not looked into the claims. I probably, unlike you, do think that fat phobia and ableism have an influence on public health. So when when it's when it's a legitimate charge, right? With it, when it's a legitimate charge. And I have not run down all those charges at the same Can time. Can you define to me, fat phobia for me? me to what me, is fat phobia? What's fat phobia? That's a great conversation for another time. But to me... Because I mean, it seems to me that fat phobia now, today, honestly, is just telling people to eat healthy and that being fat is not a healthy way to live. I mean, that to me, that comment okay. would be would be deemed fat phobic and probably get me banned from uh, this conference. As you know, Jamie... Fat phobia is an extremely interesting topic, but it's just as difficult to define, you know, in a in a thumbnail as as anti-Semitism is. Um, and but but don't eat a Krispy Kreme a day, ain't it? 
<laughs> don't well, I can tell you what tripped wires for the, for that crowd in that sentence, which is namely the word obesity, but I'll tell you more about that at another time. Which is a scientific term. Okay, I'll tell you about it at the, at another time. But what I do agree with you all on is I I wouldn't have signed this petition, but I I don't take a huge amount of umbrage that it was signed. I think if there was a, you know, if there had been a petition against Alice, Alice Walker speaking and she's been disinvited from many things, too bad she wasn't disinvited from yours. Um, cause she is a, a nefarious figure, much worse than this woman. Um, I don't think you would have been angry that a petition had been circulated, right. To get her not to speak. Um, it, but so I don't, I don't put a whole lot of stock in the petition. I also, Jamie, you, I haven't heard you respond to the fact that she was getting threats for presumably from the right or from mm. some anti-vax, anti-mask crowd, uh, death threats, which is something that for in all the conversation about cancel culture, I can show you the numbers on the kind of harassment I've got deliberately to gag uh, 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 free speech. Um, and in this case, it worked. Oh, of course, that's the worst. I mean, I don't, I don't even consider that cancel culture. And once you're threatening someone's life, that's a crime. Right. So that's in a league all by itself. Um, you know, whether or not that's the reason she actually chose to back out, uh, I don't want to cast dispersions, but I could see her, you know, pointing to that perhaps as opposed to further inflaming the left where she situates herself. I mean, it's, it, it might it might have been you know easier for her to point to that perhaps as, as the reason for doing this. But of course, it's all, it's terrible. And I mean, no one should ever have their life threatened for expressing a, a viewpoint. OK. Onto the judgments that we must render. Justice Heffernan, what say you? Was Lena Wen canceled? Was it a fair cancellation? I take her at her word. I think she backed out of a conference on the grounds that people seem to uh, not to want her there. I've, I've, you know, declined invitations, thinking, well, it's not a friendly crowd, um, and also because she got this threat. And skipping one conference uh, and having everything else, you know, still in place, not a cancellation. Did she deserve to have this petition written about her? Absolutely not. Justice Kerchik, what say you? Uh, I concur with everything Virginia said. I, huh, that's interesting. I have taken the totality of the evidence presented here and have come to a different co conclusion that this amounts to a cancellation in kind. I do think she was canceled and I do think that that was unfair. So say us one, so say us all. All judgments of cancel court are binding precedent until which time of reconsideration or revelation of bad takes, bad tweets, or punching down. On this date, November 23rd, Anno Domini 2022, it is so ordered. And now is the section of the show where we discuss things that really grind our gears. You know, they really, they really get our goats. We call them our goat grinders. Jamie, do you have a goat grinder for us? Yes, I was at an airport yesterday, and I was waiting to purchase an item of food. And the woman in front of me was paying with change, and not just change, but pennies. <laughs> and I just have to stress, you know, look, this was not a, this person wasn't poor, okay? They were in an airport. They were flying somewhere. Uh, they deliberately chose to pay with change. When I, I was audibly sighing, and she turned to me and said, I'm trying to get rid of my change. Yeah. <laughs> no, you don't ever pay with change anymore. I'm sorry. Uh, use a credit card. Use your ATM card. Um, and, you know, I love President Lincoln. He is my favorite president. He's the best president. But I also think we don't need the penny anymore. So stop paying with change. And she, and she did it in a place where you have to take it through a metal detector. Of all the places yes, in the world. Yes, I hadn't even thought of Was that. she Absolutely. trying to get rid of uh, American currency, though? Maybe? No. Uh, uh, I've you know what? I, didn't, to... I didn't get that far. I didn't get that far into the conversation with her. I was loudly harumphing. <laughs> I, by the way, common ground on banning the penny. I, uh, whenever I inter interview a presidential candidate, I always put it to them. And I have to say, uh, Pete Buttigieg definitely hemmed and hawed on that one. Ooh, good for, to know. It's because Abe Abe Lincoln was probably gay and Pete's gay, and so That's, there's the kind of affinity that we there's yeah. an affinity we all have for one another. But he's in favor of the Joshua Speed penny, interestingly. <laughs> <laughs> Virginia, what's your go grinder? All right. If there's anything I talk about more than silicon chips it, lately, it's my brother, uh, who is an extraordinary um, athlete and muscle man, and just came in fourth in the world in a in an esoteric but interesting competition called Deca Strong. Yeah, more information available on request, listeners. But that's not a goat grinder. What is a goat grinder is that my cohort 
seems to have gotten interested in very hardcore weight training in response to concerns about osteoporosis. So I went to a really the old gym called Murder of Crows today, exactly your image of an old gym. And I tried to lift really heavy weight because there's a new thing that small amounts of weight are terrible for you, Um, including the weights that I use, these wrist and uh, wrist weights that I'm now told are will be the death of me, even though I just spent two hundred dollars on them. I got so exhausted and practically sick because after just a few like hard squats and was basically told, well, that's part of the game. If you're going to, you're going to really work out with heavy weights, you have to accept this kind of nausea. And I thought to myself, my feminist stand is no nausea. That's what I'm going to, that's my position. My own cancelable health um, views are that no workout should cause nausea. Well, I would say lactic acid is both the affliction and the cure. So don't worry. Do it again, and you'll get that lactic acid pumping. Okay. It'll be a bomb. Okay. A bomb for whatever's you. <laughs> okay. 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 I'll, I'll believe you. Mike, what's yours? Three, two, one. That is how people count down when they're normal, sane people operating in our society. But recently, I encountered a different form of countdown. So I've been doing some yoga, speaking of health. Mm. I don't know if I've been doing it. I've dabbled in it. It's been done to me. And as I am in lizard or uh, <laughs> supplicating dragon or whatever their mastodon poses are. Pose. I, as, I, as I am in suspended <laughs> mastodon, I <laughs> will have the instructor tell me to hold my pose and she will count four. And then she will say something like, center your intention. Three, now breathe into your lower back, thereby establishing the cadence. And then after three, she will say two, but more time than that. I just as a radio professional know that dead air is the death of all of us. I don't know if you guys do yoga or if other people do yoga, but at least this instructor, and I've seen it with a couple of instructors, does not use a countdown cadence in regular intervals. <laughs> and it is hard for me to blame this on anything except the entire gestalt of yoga. I use a Hindi word in, in gestalt. And I don't like it. It's not good. It doesn't convince me to hold my mastodon any longer. It just makes me worry about the creakiness of my knees. What are you doing, yoga instructor? Three, two, one get on the ball maybe, countdown is this a maybe this is a non-western cadence mike that you really need to drop that old npr timing that your larry king pacing and just yield yeah. to something slightly i was uh, thinking of that except india has a space program and i went and watched their rocket launches and they all are three two one quite regular i i am <laughs> i am totally uh i totally support you and your goat grinder well, thank you both so very much. That has been Not Even Mad, a Peach Fish project. The show is produced by Joel Patterson. The COO of Peach Fish Projects is Michelle Pesca. Our theme songs by Max Kerman. Content designed by Big Yellow Taxi. Advertising by Lipson's Advertise Cast. Want to drop us a line? Our email address is notevenmad at peachfishprojects.com. And look for the hashtag notevenmad on Twitter. Jamie Kirchick has a diary of his book tour in the current issue of the Spectator World edition. And Virginia Heffernan's review of Chris Miller's Chip War is out in the New York Times print edition. I know, I held it in my hands. On the gist this week... I like big butts and I cannot lie. You other brothers can't deny. That was, of course, among the number one hits of 1992. We'll be counting down the number ones. It's the season two debut of Chris Malamphy, Chris's return to The Gist. That's tomorrow. Please subscribe to Not Even Mad wherever you listen to podcasts while you're there. Give us glowing ratings or reviews. We would love to hear what you think. Until next time, we're not necessarily saying we're right. We're definitely not saying you're right, but we are not even mad. Thank you.